We take up our Bibles at this time and turn to the book of Job, Job chapter 1. And I'd like to read from verse 1 to hear a little bit more of the context and rolling into that which is, to many, a very familiar telling of providence, certainly a, a harsh one in the life of Job. And yet a recognition for us, even in this season of the year, of the wonder that a Redeemer is sent into our brokenness, into the most broken account, perhaps, in all of the Scriptures. And so we may place our trust in a God who works great providence. So let's hear these words. We'll look especially at verses 13 to 22 this morning. But let's hear God's Word, Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Thus far the reading of God's Word. We turn also in the Harvard Catechism to Lord's Day 10, can find that, on page, find that on page 876 in the back of the Maroon Trinity Psalter hymnal, page 876. And so we hear question and answers 27 and 28 together. Question 27 asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? 
Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. And thus far, our confession. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we come to a heavy text one made perhaps especially heavy for some in the season of year that we are found in. That, Father, as we consider your power, your right hand, Lord, we don't always understand it. There's often times that we question it. And yet the confession, more your word, continues to bring us back. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, Father, meet us where our hearts are found today. And drive us to yourself in that kind of hope and comfort and peace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, congregation beloved of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, does the truth of who God is impact your understanding of what he is working in you and all around you? Just think about it for a minute, because sometimes we think about God and we speak of relationship with Him and, and how we live with Him and so forth, and yet there seems to be some kind of divide or some kind of broken connection between even what we do here and, and how we experience life in good things and in bad. And yet, what is the testimony we make in the closing words of Lord's Day 9? I trust God so much that I do not doubt. And certainly there's explanation there that he will provide for me. He will turn to good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. And then a confession. He is able to do this because he is almighty. He desires to do this because he's faithful. And we leave and, and we go out to life and we recognize that who God is and, and what he is and we rejoice in it. But then what? I think for many of us, we, we doubt. I do. I'm sure some of you do too. That in all of that confession, in all of that wonder, in all of that truth, that connection isn't made. We forget the truth of who God is. We forget the truth of what He's working. We focus on our present difficulties, our hardships, our adversities, our struggles in this veil of tears rather than on Him and His promises and how those inform all of those things. We may think we have some kind of power to bring things about, to fix them, to correct them rather than resting in Him and in His power. In fact, in, in having heard the creation account, how, how can we not be overwhelmed and, and humbled by way of His power? We would think we would have no reason to doubt His plans and His purposes for all things. But we do more often than we can count. 
that person who's held us up or made the yellow light when if he would have just put his foot on the gas right away, everybody could have gotten through. Struggle of that guy getting that promotion even though I'm more qualified. That person at school getting that opportunity when, well, the teacher should have picked me. We question and we doubt. We forget that he's good, that what he's made is good, that what he desires is to make it good again. We forget that he works all things for the good of those who love him in his power. We forget. We forget that providence is the almighty and ever-present, always-present power of God. That thing that we don't think about in the good things, the thing that we question in the bad things by which God upholds is with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, hear it again, all things come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And yet that consideration of that kind of power will always bring us in our finiteness and in our pride to a bit of a conundrum. Because God, you say everything's good. You say you're good. But my life is not good, not by my estimation. Here are the struggles. Here's the ways that things could be better. Here's how you could provide for me in a more glorifying way. We might not say it this way in our prayers, but it's the attitude of our heart. God, you say you're powerful, yet I know drought and lean and sickness and poverty and struggle and hardship and bitterness and grief and death. And then you say to me that none of it comes by chance. So it comes from you. And you say it's good. How? It's in those thought moments that we're often brought to question God rather than to confess God where we speak of God not working or knowing or caring rather than speaking trust in one almighty and able, one loving and faithful. And so in those moments, a true testimony of providence is certainly most helpful. I would say, Christian, it is most vital. A testimony we should give regularly when we receive the undeserved, unmerited goodnesses of God that come to us each and every day. But it's also important that when we receive those hard things, we'll be able to open our mouths and give the exact same testimony of faith. And so that's what brings us to this account in Job's life this morning. One full of full and bitter testimonies of providence. So that, yes, we'd learn from his words and his actions, but more that we would be mindful in everything we speak and live before an almighty, faithful God and Father. And the world needs to hear that from us too. We share a story of providence in a sure testimony concerning who our God is and what he's working. We share a story of providence and a sure testimony concerning who our God is and what he's working. And so it's one of thankfulness and patience. We see that in verses 13 through 19. 
It is a story of humility and of worship. We see that then in verses 20 and 21. And then it is one of confidence and security in that last verse, verse 22. But that story of providence, whether it's in the story of Job or in any of our stories, has to begin with God's goodness, with thankfulness, with every blessing, which is an undeserved, unmerited blessing from Him. It says in James 1.17, every good, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of life and who, light in who there is no variation, that's shifting shadows. There's a comfort that we have in that blessing because God changes not, therefore we are not consumed. And so each of us has much to be thankful for. No matter what else is going on in our life, we have much to give him praise for, including all of those things that we simply take for granted as those things provided or that should be provided by God. And we lose sight of that in Job 1 because we rush to verses 13 and 22. That's what we think about when we think about Job. We think about his loss. We think about that bitterness and that hardship and the terrible friends that he has. But we don't always talk about God's goodness. The whole chapter is an amazing testimony of God's goodness and grace of provision shown to Job, his family, blessing and abundance. All Job had was gift. Every bit of it, the list here, the receipt of everything he had received by the hand of, the God that, of God that, that he wasn't worthy of, that he didn't do anything to deserve or to have in the first place, all were given by a faithful God as a gift. That is why we can be thankful in prosperity. It's not mine. It's his. It's a trust. It's a gift. And so I rejoice. And yet, if we can't be thankful for what we've been given, how could we ever be thankful then or patient if all of it were taken away? And we don't like to think about that. We don't like to talk about it. It's what Satan drives at when the father asks him to consider a servant. If your Bibles are open, look back at verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? What an indictment. Life's good for him. You have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. You've placed a hedge about him. Verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And that word that's translated here as curse really is bless. Here is Satan being in some ways a little bit edgy with the Lord. It's the interplay of that word throughout this first chapter. It's always that word bless. Is he going to bless you then, God? Life's good for Job. Of course he blesses you. But will he bless you to your face when you touch all that belongs to him? Because he knows as well as we do that it's a lot easier to talk about thankfulness and trust when things are good or how we think they should be. But how will we respond on the most terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Now there was a day. That's the hurt in this text. There was that kind of day. There will be those kinds of days. 
when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. For Job, that day would have started like every other day in the rotation of those seven sons with offerings in the continual way spoken of in verse 5. Having relationship with the Lord, drawing near to God for himself and for the sake of his family and thanks to know God's peace, to know his forgiveness. It was a day like any other day, lived in the goodness of God. And then the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. Unfortunate news of raiders. The loss of life and livelihood. Then another, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you, not an account of a normal lightning event, but like that sent against Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, or of the destruction of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, or in the consuming of the offering Elijah made before the prophets of Baal. It could be nothing else but God. Another sounding of the loss of life and livelihood. And then another. The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you another group of raiders. More calculated, more vicious, more merciless. And the chorus repeats, all is lost, all are murdered. I alone am left. And then the worst. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It's one thing to to lament or to groan over the loss of possessions at the hands of men. To hear of the loss of all of these young people, a reference to all of those servants, a reference to all of his children, by a whirlwind, by something that has no explanation in anything other than providence, other than in the hand of God, this is what's happened. It is the definition of bitter providence. Job has almost every blessing in his life taken away in a moment. Some of you have lost jobs. You've lost investments. You've lost savings. Much of your livelihood at the broken hands of others. Some of you in ways that could only be referenced as the hand of God. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost family members loved. All of us. Job suffers it all. And as we try to wrap our minds around that, even in the smallest way, and I know some of you in much more emotional ways than I can right now, it may seem to you calloused to talk about thanksgiving to talk about blessing, to talk about God's goodness. That we want to say and ask a very pointed question, not only of each other, but also of the Lord in that moment. Is there anything to be thankful for? 
to be met with that kind of news. Is there anything? God exists. And God is near. And God is working. And God hasn't changed. That's why we can be thankful in those moments and patient in adversity. And I confess, in studying this text, in dealing with that word in the catechism, I hate that word. Patient? Patient in that? Patient when I think I've come to a way as a fixer where all of this could be better? Patient? And yet I love that word. Because patient means I can wait upon him without losing my mind trying to figure out why. Patient. Patient means I can trust that God has a reason according to his grace and goodness. As hard as that is to hold on to in a moment like that. It says in Belgian Confession, Article 13, this doctrine gives us an unspeakable comfort, which is interesting that it uses that word because we don't like to speak it. But it needs to be spoken. An unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control, so that not one of the hairs on our head, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought, hear it, we rest. I want to fix it. And he says, rest. I want to change it. And he says, rest. I want to question it. And he says, rest. Knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. And I know it is one thing to say this. I know it's one thing to say, I believe this. It's another to live this by faith. And that's the key, right? I got to live this. I got to go forth from that space where I've received whatever that terrible news is. And I have to live this by faith. And so I ask you this morning, are you ready to respond to all that comes from the sovereign hand of God and His providence? For what you will receive, are you truly thankful? Are we able to wait upon God when His will in adversity isn't clear? But then you say, well, what does that look like? And I want to challenge you with this in the narrative. To be patient in adversity means being able to be thankful for the four lives which were saved even in the midst of your sorrow over great loss. And so it's something we have to pray about, right? Lord, work in us true thankfulness for all the myriad ways that you have blessed us and cared for us. 
that when trials come and those struggles are hard and those losses mount and when death rips our heart out, work patience in us to wait on you, knowing that you haven't changed and you are using such stories again and again to bring us before your story. That in doing so, he brings us by way of providence at work to humility and worship and that in the second place. And so please don't think that in moving so quickly, I'm seeking in any way to minimize the hurt and sorrow Job encountered. We, we can't do that. It's the tragedy at funeral homes where you listen to people going through the line and instantly in that moment they want to talk to you about the will of God. Please shut your mouth. You just have to say, I'm sorry. And we pray sure promises of Christ for you. And I'm here. We have to get there, but not right away. And so we don't minimize the hurt and sorrow Job encountered. He had no clue as to the conversation between the Almighty and the evil one. He had no context for what took place. And so as we consider even in our own lives, one of those reports, just just one of them, would be enough to take our breath away. To bring great pain, none greater or comparable to the loss of his children. And even then, maybe, and we don't have that, but maybe Job had been asked to sit down before he received all that news. But more than likely, that news staggered him. A blow absorbed by every fiber of his being, exploding in every sense and thought at once. It would have brought him to his knees. As a pastor, I've been tasked a number of times to be the bearer of bad news. No one likes to see the police or the pastor show up to their house when they haven't been asked to. It's terrible. It's awful. We try to empathize and sympathize in the moment, but there are no words or actions that can dull that experience or make it better. They simply absorb it. And we stand there and we absorb it too and we take it in. But as hard as that first moment is, it isn't that first moment which speaks the loudest of our hope and our comfort or of what we believe about God or his power or his work. It's the next one. It's the second one. How will I respond How will I go on? Will we get up? Will we persevere in trust and in patience? Or will we be overwhelmed by anger and bitterness and confusion, so caught up in our loss that we simply stop living? How will we speak of loss and sorrow? How will we speak of God's providence then? Is He still Lord? Is he still in control? Is he still sovereign? Does he still know how all these things work together for glory and good? And if I seek to absorb that in myself, in my strength, in my wisdom, in my understanding, I can only be crushed. But if we're brought to our knees with an only comfort and rooted hope. Yeah, we're going to feel that, and we're going to fall, and we're going to cry, 
we're going to hurt. And then we can get up. And it's the joy in reading this text when we read in verse 20, then Job arose. I'm thankful that it doesn't give a time frame there. (laughs) We don't know how long, but we know he does. It's a testimony in itself. Job's literally been brought low. Maybe broken would be a better word, full of grief and sorrow, yet he gets up anyway. It doesn't mean that he isn't wholly affected. It doesn't mean that he just goes on as though nothing happened. Let's put on that happy church face so we can go and we can have that, hey, good, how are you? Good, yeah, good. Just throwing out platitudes and words about God's will in that moment like it's going to help. No, he got up. He got up. And then he grieved. He tore his robe and he shaved his head. He made his appearance to match his experience. And it was okay. Oh, you need to be happy. We need to celebrate life. We don't. No. No, I certainly do not. This is my experience. This is that grief and it's hard. And it looks hard and it is hard. And it's okay. Oh, you don't want to wear black. Wear what you want. Oh, you shouldn't cry. Cry your eyes out. Grieve. We read that in Job 2, verse 12, and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. He needed people too. Even as terrible as those friends are, he needed people. Job was sharing a story of grief, of lamentation and rejection, of what it's to be forsaken. And yet in the fullness of that experience, of which that is a part of our experience, our reality, he brings over time those actions of grief into the context of humility and of submission to God. He fell on the ground and he worshiped. He got up, and then I need need to be low before you, God. It's an amazing testimony of reverence and patience, bowing low before a God in whose presence he lived. Not just when things were good, not just when it was, let's let's get up in the morning and, and offer sacrifices for my kids. No, this is us, God. This is you and me. He gives himself to the will of the Lord, even though he can't understand it. And then he worships. Worships fullness of who he is. I mean, for many of us, that might not be our first response, much less our second or third. And yet he worships understanding clear and present realities, giving voice in, as one writes, the noblest expression of the joyful acceptance of the will of God as his only good. He simply acknowledges the Almighty. He lays himself before an everlasting God while acknowledging his own limits and need for him. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. God, I I know my own finiteness. 
it says in Ecclesiastes 5, and he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. It's the span and reality of life. Job knows it. And we have to be mindful of the same. What is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so Job is acknowledging this, even that in acknowledging that all he has appears for a time, but it is the Lord's. And that truth is a gift. The Lord gave. It was your goodness. All of that was gift. And the Lord has taken away. He is able to see the hand of the Lord right away. He sees one sovereign over all and testifies in his worship to his need for God. Words that will be picked up by Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Job is testifying of his dependence upon God. It says again in Belgic 13, We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. You have a plan for this. There's an order for this. And I don't get it. And I don't see that. Like putting advanced calculus in front of your kindergartner. What? But I will trust that there's an answer. And if If this is what we believe, it's what we say, we're a confessional church, Bible-believing church, if this is what we believe, the comfort we truly hold in all times, then in thankfulness and patience, in humble worship, even in that moment we can be used of God to praise Him and to bless Him, even though our hearts are broken and still breaking and we cannot understand how any of it brings him glory. Because we share a story in every way that must say, blessed be the name of the Lord. God, this is where I'm living right now, and blessed be the name of the Lord seems very far away. But I know that I will get there. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's the third time in the narrative that Yahweh's name is mentioned. As though Job is reminding himself, my God is a covenant-keeping God. My God is faithful. A story meant not just to praise the Lord, but to remind him of the Lord's character and reputation. As Job basically says, Lord... A faithful God, you're all I've got. That's it. And in saying it this way, he shares his humility, the story of humility and worship perfectly. 
that as one commentator writes, a man may stand stripped before God of everything that life has given him and still lack nothing. He has the Lord. He has every blessing in him, including the only way he can pick himself up and live and worship. As Ash writes, Job worships even when he has nothing to show for it. So I ask you, can you? Can we? Will we humble ourselves before one who is almighty and faithful even when it seems like we've got nothing to show for it? Will we worship the Lord through our pains and sorrows and griefs and burdens, knowing that if we have Him, if we have Christ, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? That He won't give us what is best. Will we live out of the confidence and security with Yahweh that such an understanding of providence gives us and that in the last place. Because by grace, Job has been given that kind of confidence and security and he'll need it. We need it. Especially given the words that he will hear from his clueless friends. And what I appreciate about the book of Job is that even Job won't always say it right. He doesn't always speak it in the best way he's still going to need to be humbled and brought again and again and again before the truth of one who is almighty, able and willing and faithful. But here Job lives it and speaks it. And what a commendation in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Think about that. I mean, even in our most minor inconveniences, we doubt and question God. We get angry and pitch a fit. But here, after all that he has heard, not a word of anger, vindictiveness, or rage. Not a word of unbelief or blame. Literally, it says he did not ascribe blame to God for anything. And that, to us, is the most unbelievable part of the story, maybe. It's unbelievable because of our natural tendency to doubt, to question, to seek to have the place of the throne of our hearts that only belongs to God. So how will we go on after receiving such losses or receiving such benefits? How will the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient and thankful. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Job holds to the assurance that the Lord is worthy of blessing, even as he trusts that the Lord will continue to hold on to his servant. Satan expects Job to curse Job's wife will encourage it. Do you still hold fast your integrity, Job 2.9? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as of one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's because of the blessing and grace of God. That even when we hold on, or hold on to nothing in this life, we know the guarantee that he is holding on to us and will never let us go. That is blessing enough to get up and meet the trials and sorrows of life. Is that your comfort? Your security in the providence of God? 
Job will testify to it in Job 19. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin and my flesh have been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. I will see him. And I will be with him. And I will have him. And none of these things in this life changes that. And even when my life seems so dark and backward that I can't figure it out, I will give the testimony that I trust that he is working. Job 23, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires that he does for what he will complete, what he For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified in his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. I am not terrified of the things that may come in this life. My sorrow doesn't overwhelm all of my confidence because I tremble before a God who is to be praised. And we can do that in confidence and assurance for we know. That God, were in God, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Is this your story? And you're like, my life is pretty good right now. It needs to be your story now. Is this your testimony, not only in words, but in your actions and responses? If not, draw near to the Lord to one almighty and faithful and ask that he simply be near you, that in cloud and sunshine he would abide with you, even as you give testimony to who he is and what he is working. And by grace, let us and let the truth of who God is among us impact our understanding of what he is working in each one of us and around us to the blessing of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the comfort that it provides us. We ask, Lord, that you would meet us there, that if our life right now is cloud or sunshine, Father, whatever it may be, Lord, you know it all together and you are with us and nothing will separate us from you. And so, Father, may this providence then not just be a Lord's Day 10 reality. May it be ours, we pray by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.